All right, so here, here's what we're going to do to start with today. I'm going to do this too. I'm going to take a seat. Take a seat. Everybody, take a nice, deep, cleansing breath. Do we need that right now? Oh my goodness, do we need it. And if you haven't noticed, at least in the heartland of America, God has blessed us with the most beautiful autumn weather you've ever seen. Has he not? Do you think that's an accident? Okay, really, just relax, breathe a little. Uh, you're in a very safe place this morning, safe not because uh, you won't be challenged or kicked in the face, but safe because, <laughs> safe because you're in the presence of God, and, and his spirit has an opportunity to speak to you today. His word has an opportunity to speak to you today, and so regardless of everything else that's happening in the world around us, uh, I was looking, I was outside yesterday enjoying the, the weather, and, and I, I don't remember who, which child it was I was talking to, or maybe it was Kristen, I don't remember, but either way, <laughs> I said, you know, in six weeks, the days start getting longer again. Hey, I'm just saying, the, that first day of winter, the days start getting longer again. I mean, I, those are, see, that's the way I think. That's my mind, right? That's where I go, is to my happy places, like daylight, I love daylight. Um, it's a beautiful thing, and so I can't sit down for long, but I would just for a moment, you know, just to, just to relax. Um, let's open with a word of prayer this morning, shall we? There's a lot of things going on at the schools and things around us, not because thousands and thousands of children have come down with COVID, but because enough have that affect teachers and families, and so uh, they're having to do some things and take some measures, and you and I know that's hard on everyone, and so let's, let's just lift up the whole community, the whole nation. Uh, Father, God, we're so grateful for this morning, for the opportunity to be in your house. It, it's just, it's something that so many of us take for granted because we've always had it, we've always done it maybe our whole lives. Uh, but Father, it's something that's so precious and so special. And I just pray that as, as this disease runs its course, Father, that your hand is so obvious, that your movement in people's lives is so obvious, that our opportunities to reach out to those that are struggling, that are suffering is so obvious, Father, that we can't miss it. Father, that the fruit that we're supposed to bear in our life that we're going to talk about today, Father, just makes itself so obvious, so apparent that we, we can't deny it. Father, we know you speak to us, and I pray that you do that today. We pray for protection for this community, for the schools, the teachers, the students, the families. Father, those in our own fellowship here that have been diagnosed with the disease, uh, Father, they're doing okay. Uh, they're, they're recuperating, but Father, there's so many out there that are struggling, that are, are dealing with this thing, and Father, we've got to be there for them. Now, whether they know you or not, that's not important at the moment. We've got to be there for them so they get to know you. Father, in these moments that we live in, life is precious. It's fragile. And sometimes we take it for granted, too. So let us strive this holiday season not to do that. Let's strive to make your love so obvious to those around us that they can't help but want to experience it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I do want to remind you just real quick, we've got a, what should be a very brief uh, con congregational meeting this afternoon, five o'clock, a really short meeting. That's for all of us to approve uh, the, the budget for this next year. We get to catch you up and fill you in on some happenings from this last year. Our ministry leaders kind of get a chance to share just a little bit about what all they've done and maybe even some plans of what they'd like to do uh, in the near future in this coming year. Um, we do have to have these meetings. It's not because we really, really, really love having them, although uh, I have a dream, a vision for this meeting one day soon, hopefully maybe even as soon as next year for it to be more than just a meeting, but it is something that the state requires us to do. And so we want to honor that and we want to uh, obey those rules, if you will, and approve our budget and, and discuss those bylaws real quick and, and move on into uh, 2021. Oh my goodness, it's almost here. Um, it's even weird to say, all right? So, so be ready for that. We'd love to have you at five o'clock. Um, it's, it's a wonderful thing uh, to get to be a part of the body of Christ together, all right? So I just want, that's a little PSA, public announcement for you, so you know that's coming up. Um, we're looking, looking forward to that. So here we go, week six, week six now of our 40 days in the Word. We've got one final week remaining next week. We've been studying, in case you're just joining us online or, or here in person, um, we've been studying this idea of how to study God's Word better, how to get in and get out of it what God intends for us to. Last week's memory verse, Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is so important to retain the Word of God within you, and the more you study it, the more you enact it, the better you'll be able to remember it 
as well. Last week I mentioned, regardless of what form of Bible study you are doing, it doesn't matter whether it's a word study, a character study, a book study, a chapter study, a verse-by-verse study, every single one of those, you're going to come to four basic questions, categories that you got to ask every single time. Number one, observation. Number two, interpretation. Number three, correlation. And number four, application. In observation, that's where you ask the really simple question, what does it say? What on earth does this passage specifically say? It's not anything complicated. You write down what words are there. What does it say? Second, interpretation. What does it mean? The Bible means what it means. We're going to talk about that a little more today, a little bit more about the topic of interpretation. After interpretation is correlation. That's where you look at God's word as a whole and you say, okay, what other verses could help explain this one to me, especially if I'm struggling a little bit? What other things? Where else could I go, God, to show me what this verse particularly means to help me better understand it? Because I said this last week, the best commentary on the Bible is, in fact, the Bible. The fourth and final step is application. We will get to that today with a a challenge for you for sure. What am I going to do about it? What I've heard, what I've read, what I've written down, what am I going to do about it? The Bible study is not complete until I decide and actually act on the things that I am learning. The Word of God has to change your life. Otherwise, it's a worthless book. The Bible was not given to us to just give us head knowledge. It was given to us to change our lives completely. So application is that final final step. Today, we're going to look at those middle two, interpretation and correlation. How do I understand the meaning of a text? Now, I've shared this with you before, but this study was all put together several years ago, 2012, uh, by Pastor Warren at Saddleback Church, literally. And I love these kinds of things because they've been studied by thousands and thousands of churches all over the world. How cool is it that the body of Christ can still get in and study and focus on similar things all together? It's a wonderful thing, but he does such a good and picks just, just the right passages to help explain some of these principles. And so we get to share another one of those today. Today's passage, Jesus gets very, very, very intimate, very personal with this group of people. It's from John chapter 15. So if you've got your Bibles, grab them. If you don't have one, grab one from under the seat in front of you. If you use your phone, your tablet, whatever, it doesn't matter. Open that up, John 15. Grab that outline beside you, unless you're a freestyle person, then grab the note card out of the seat back in front of you. Uh, Amber is doing a great job of getting kept up with all of those things. We can take notes each and every week. I'm going to read just the first 17 verses of chapter 15 aloud here in just a moment, and then we're going to dig in and we're going to talk about what this verse means and what it doesn't mean and how to get the correct meaning out of it, right? Sometimes people will say something like this. God doesn't expect us to be successful in life. He only expects us to be faithful. Now, that sounds great. It's in 1 Moses chapter 7. Look it up, okay? It sounds great, okay? Sounds great. But it's not true, you see, because there is no 1 Moses. God expects us to be faithful. That part's correct. But the Bible teaches he doesn't only expect us to be faithful. He expects us to be fruitful, That would be success in God's eyes. Bearing fruit is one of the major, 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 major themes of the New Testament. God says, hey, I created you. I've invested in your lives. As a matter of fact, I gave my son for you. You've now accepted him. So now I put my Holy Spirit inside of you, and I've got some things set aside for you to do good works. He's prepared in advance for us to do. I want you to go and bear fruit. So it's not true to say that God just He wants us to be faithful and fruitful. So John 15 talks about this very idea. Here are the first 17 verses. Some of you will recognize this right away. Very familiar passage to many. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that there will be even more fruit. You are already clean. Because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. That's remain connected to the vine, to Jesus. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain or stay connected to the vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit, guys. This is the last time he talks to his disciples, this long speech, if you will. God wants you to live a very, very fruitful life, not just a little fruit. He wants you to have a lot of fruit. Circle that, much fruit. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Not a few things, nothing. Anyone that does not remain in me is like a branch that gets thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked, thrown into the fire, and burned. 
If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. That's a pretty amazing promise, isn't it? This is my Father's, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. There it is again, much fruit. Showing yourselves to be my disciples as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love and if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. He says, I want you to be joyful from everything that I'm telling you. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. No greater love has a man than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants. Because a servant, well, the servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. Now, here's the thing. These 17 verses have more spiritual insights, more truths than we could possibly cover between now and the end of this calendar year. So we're going to have to limit our study, and we will. We're going to focus on one particular portion, one particular world over today. And then the challenge for you is to take the rest of this verse and apply some of these principles and continue the exploration of God's word on your own, praying that God will open those spiritual eyes of yours to see the additional truths that exist. Today, we're going to focus on fruit, okay? I want to begin by showing you how a verse can be misinterpreted, all right? If you ignore the rules of interpretation, you're going to get the verse wrong. You might have heard heard people say something like this um, about the Bible. Hey, that's just your interpretation, as if they can have an interpretation, I can have an interpretation, every one of you can have an interpretation, and they're all correct. No, (laughs) that's not true, You see, the Bible, every verse in the Bible has one and only, uh uh-oh, get this, meaning. Now, it can have a lot of applications, but only one interpretation. The Bible does not mean 10 different things when it says a singular thing. Now, there can be a lot of applications. A lot of people get those two definitions confused. The applications can change based on whether you're a male or a female. Whether you're older or younger, single or married, whether you live in the 21st century or you lived in the 1st century when much of it was written, there are limitless number of applications to every verse in God's word, but there's only one meaning. And if you don't get that meaning right, you could veer way off the deep end because there are correct ways to interpret the Bible and there are incorrect ways. If you don't know the rules of interpretation, you seriously can go and end up starting some type of cult. Why? Well, because if you want to, you can make the Bible say anything that you want if you ignore the rules of interpretations. If you take just a little verse here and a little verse there out of context, misinterpret it, then the meaning of God's word changes drastically, and that's not for us to do. So today, we're going to look at how to interpret a verse correctly. How do you get it right? Well, here's your first and maybe most basic principle. Consider the historical context. You have to consider the historical context. Ask this question. Who on earth is speaking, is is being spoken to here? Who who are we talking about? Who are we talking to and why? Why are they being told this thing? Until you know the old who, what, when, where, and whys of a passage, you don't know what it means. You got to ask the question, what did it mean to the people that God was talking to at that moment? Because you need to know this. Why? The meaning doesn't change. Whatever it meant to those people, it means the exact same thing today. The application might change, but the original meaning of the text does not. Who was God talking to? Why is he saying it at this point in time? What is his motivation? So John 15 was a passage on bearing fruit. Now, what you have to know about this passage is it's right in the middle of this big, long, four-chapter conversation. It's all recorded on the same night. And Jesus is all talking to the same people just before he's betrayed, arrested, beaten, and ultimately crucified. This is the very last conversation that Jesus ever has with his disciples before his death on the cross. Jesus has now spent three, a little over three years now with these 12 men. He has trained them to take on the ministry when he is no longer physically present after he resurrects and goes back to heaven. 
He wants to spend this time with them. He takes them to a very private, secure location. This is not a speech for the masses. This is a speech for a few select individuals. He's not preaching to a big jack group. He's saying to his most trusted followers, the people that he loves the dearest and best in John 13, 14, 15, and 16. He has this one extended conversation. It all happens on the same night, and Jesus ends the prayer in the garden, chapter 17, praying for all of his disciples and for us, as we learn when we study the book of John. So in order to fully understand chapter 15, its context, you got to go back to chapter 13 and say, okay, what was Jesus saying? Why was he saying it? Who is he talking to? We have to look at the context, the verses before and after. So we got to spend a little time to go through what happened before Jesus gets to the fruit, all right? So go back to John chapter 13 if you want. You can follow along. We're going to summarize some things in 13 and 14. Jesus has invested these three years. He loves them. These are his farewell instructions. When somebody is giving you their last words before they pass away, you should listen. Jesus is going to talk about, in this conversation, the things he will talk about are the most important things that he wants them and us to understand. How do I know that? Well, Because if there was anything else more important, guess what? He'd have talked about it. <laughs> he wouldn't have left it out. He's summarizing his entire ministry in these four chapters. He takes them to this private room, the upper room, to observe the Passover feast. This is, of course, where Jesus leads them in the Last Supper, which then, of course, he shares with them communion, which we still celebrate to this very day. And the conversation begins in chapter 13, verse 1. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knows he's going to die on the cross. And having loved his own who were in the world, his disciples, he now showed them the full of his love, what he's going to say in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and what he's going to do just after that are going to show to everyone the full extent of the Father's love for them and for us. This evening meal was being served. The devil, it says, has already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew that the Father had put everything under his power and that he had come from God and was ultimately going to return. So he got up from the meal. And he took off his clothes, and he wraps himself in that towel, and he began to pour the water in that basin and wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around them. Now, this is an incredibly intimate scene. Jesus knows who he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and he's going to perform this act of service for the disciples that is going to blow their minds for the record. One of the greatest things that keeps people from serving is insecurity. We are not comfortable. We're not secure in who we are or whose we are. So we refuse to go and serve others because it's awkward or it feels weird. Well, daggone it, quit using that as an excuse. Use the name of God which has bought you and saved you. Claim whose you are. Forget about your own personal feelings and uncomfortability and do what God is asking you to do. He will provide. Jesus knew who he was. He was God. So he took off those outer garments, goes around, begins performing this lowly act of service. Remember in those days, people didn't wear shoes. They wore open-toed sandals. They bathed, got ready for dinner, but their feet got dirty on the way there. So it was customary when you went into a visitor's home, a guest's home, that you have your feet washed by a servant, but there was no servant there that night, and none of the disciples took it upon themselves to fulfill that role. So Jesus goes and does the unexpected, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe, humbles himself, bows before his disciples, and washes their feet, every one of them, including Judas's, and they can't believe what's going on. This is our master, this is our Messiah, this is the King of kings, and he's washing our feet. This isn't right. So this is the famous scene where Simon Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Ain't no way that's going to happen, Jesus. To which Jesus replies, hey, Peter, you don't realize what it is that I'm doing right now, but later on, you will. You will. For the record, that's a statement by Jesus to you as well. We usually don't understand what Jesus is doing in our lives and in our world right now, do we? But later on, we'll step back. Oh. I get it, Jesus. I see where you were going now. So Peter said, hey, no way. No Lord is his exact phrase. And by the way, you can't say that. <laughs> I don't know they're not. You can't say no and Lord in the same sentence. Either he is Lord, in which case you have to say yes, 
or no, he's not your Lord, and therefore you would not call him Lord. Peter said, no, Lord, I'll never let you wash my feet. Jesus said, okay, Pete, that's cool. Unless I wash your feet, though, uh, you're going to have nothing to do with me. <laughs> oh, what I meant to say was then, hey, not just my feet, but wash my head and my hands and my feet. Hey, wash all of me. Just get the scrub brush out. If this is what it takes, if this is what I got to do to get in, then Jesus, let's go to town. I need a bath. Let's go. <sighs> that poor guy. He's all or nothing. He's all in or he's all out. It's just so confusing and so much like so many of us, isn't he? Jesus answered, hey, Pete, uh, you've already had food. You don't need your whole body washed. You're clean, though not every one of you are clean. He's referring, of course, to Judas, who is still in the room. Jesus said, you're all clean, but not, but not all of you, because he knows Judas is there. One was going to betray him. A little later on, he speaks those words to Judas, hey, go and do what you must do. And in chapter 15, Jesus' tune changes. We read this moments ago. He says, now you're all clean. Why? Because he washed their feet? No, because Judas has left the room and the 11 guys that are there with him are clean. He says he finished washing their feet. He put on his clothes, returned to his place, and then he asks that famous rhetorical question, do you understand what I have done for you? He asks them, hey, you guys, you call me teacher. You call me Lord, and rightfully so. You're correct. That's what I am. I am your Lord. I am your teacher. But now, now that I, your Lord, and your teacher have done this, have washed your feet, now you, you should wash each other's feet. I set the example that you should do as I have done, guys. He's giving them this beautiful, intimate picture of serving one another. Now, this is the first lesson that Jesus teach them. He redefines communion for them, the, the Passover feast. But now this is his first teaching moment of a lesson within here before his life ends. Jesus knows when his life ends, they are going to be devastated. They're going to be in grief. They're going to be in shock. They're going to be sitting around asking questions like this. That wasn't supposed to happen that way. Why did that happen? Jesus, what is going on? They're going to be confused. So he tells them, hey, guys, you need to love each other, and you're going to have to serve each other. It's going to be rough. The rest of chapter 13, he just continually reminds them of how important it is to love one another. Chapter 14 will summarize the whole thing. Jesus gives them four promises in chapter 14 to encourage them. Same conversation, same room, same guys are in the room. They're in the upper room. Judas has now left. The first 11 verses sums it up this way. Hey, guys. Don't worry. They don't even know why they would need to be worried at this point, so he's pre-warning them. Because I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. Yes, I'm going to die. I'm leaving you, but I'm going to rise again. But, but I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. That's one. Verses 12 through 14, he says, hey, by the way, guys, don't worry. Don't worry. I know you're going to. No, I won't worry about anything, I'm sure Peter was saying in the back of his head. I know you're going to worry, but don't worry, because now you're going to be able to talk to me any time you want. Now, I'm not physically going to be present with you. But you can talk to me anytime you want. As a matter of fact, you can ask anything in my name and do it so that the Father is glorified by the Son. So don't, don't worry, guys. In the next few verses, 15 to 25, Jesus says, hey, guys, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Now, what we read that like, oh, okay, I get it. Do you have any idea that the disciples had absolutely zero clue at all what he was talking about? Nothing. They had no concept about what the Spirit was. What are you saying Jesus, they didn't know. I'm going to put my spirit, a piece of me, inside of you to be with you. And he will be your strength, comforter. In other words, everything I'm providing for you by physically being here, he will replace me and actually even do more. No, I'm not physically going to be here. The Holy Spirit will be with you, so don't worry. One final thing. Hey, guys, verse 27 to 38, don't worry. See a theme? Don't worry. I'm going to give you the gift of peace. Now, right now, you don't even know you need this peace, but trust me, you're going to need this peace. He says, this is not peace like the world gives. No, no, no. The world, you're going to have trouble, trials, tribulations. You can count on it. You're going to have problems, but I'm going to give you my peace that overcomes the world. So review. I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you guys, so don't worry. <laughs> You can talk to me anytime, even though I'm physically not here, guys. Don't worry. I'm going to give you a piece of me, the spirit that's going to dwell inside of you. So don't worry. And I will give you the peace that passes all understanding. Guys, don't, don't worry about what's going on around you. This is what I'm giving you. He ends chapter 14 with these words. Come now. 
let's leave this place. So for the first time, they're changing scenes. Jesus and the disciples, they leave the upper room, and Jesus has this object lesson in mind, so he takes them down a very specific path on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane so they can pass this vineyard so Jesus could share with them the story that we read moments ago, the teaching of Jesus. He sees the vineyard, and he gives them that object lesson, and thus begins chapter 15. I am the vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch that stays connected to me is going to bear fruit. But if you get disconnected, you're not going to bear any fruit. So you got to stay connected to me, guys. I'm going to be gone. I'm not going to physically be with you. He has to keep repeating himself. Humanity hasn't changed any. We have to keep repeating ourselves. You've got to stay connected to me. In the, at the very end of the object lesson in verse 11, he says, Hey, I've told you all of this, all of these things about serving, about loving, about heaven, about praying, about the Holy Spirit, about the gift of peace, about bearing fruit. This is all one conversation. I've told you all of these things so that my joy may be inside of you so that your joy can be complete. He sums it all up for them. So the context, this is the context. We just covered all the context of these verses. Who's he talking to the disciples? What's he doing? He is trying to encourage them beyond all encouragement because he knows what's coming. So the second rule of interpretation is this. You have to define key words. Today, we're going to be talking about the word fruit, so that's going to be our key word. But the regardless, when you read God's word, it's really easy sometimes to read a passage. Okay, yeah, I, I know what that means because I know what those words mean. Always ask the question, is that really what that word means there? You may or may not be familiar with the English language. I don't know. But sometimes the words we use and say don't mean what they, we think they do, or they have multiple, multiple meanings. If I were to throw out the word batter right now, some of you would instantly go to the baseball diamond, and I know who you are. Others of you would immediately go to the kitchen and cook me a cake, yellow, I love butter cakes. Anyway, um, yes, that's, it's, it's a true statement, right? Or if I mentioned the word bail, some of you would immediately start thinking about getting out of jail. Why did you go there? What's wrong? Like, some conviction there. I don't know what's happening in your mind. I was thinking about your fishing boat sinking, but whatever happened, something caused your mind. Tiny word pin, P-I-N, that teeny tiny word, has nearly 60 definitions in the English language. I didn't believe it either. Look it up. It's true. 60 definitions. It, it means that metal thing with the sharp point on the end. It, it means a, a move in wrestling when you overcome, you, you, you are the victor then. Or, of course, it means your four-digit code you put in at the ATM, right? Those have nothing to do with each other, nothing at all. They're not related in any way, yet it's the exact same word. It's no different here. When you look at a Bible verse and you see a word, you can't automatically assume you know what it means. And I bet this verse will probably tr be true for many of us as we studied it. In this particular word, verse, the word love is used nine times. Now, we're not going to talk about the word love. You can look that up. It does have several meanings in the Greek. And so it's worthwhile to look it up and explore it. We're going to look at the word fruit. It is also used nine times. In this verse, most of us probably figured out love, so here we go on the fruit. I better know what it means. If I'm called to be fruitful, if this is what God expects to me, I need to know what fruit is. He says it brings him glory. I better know what fruit is. Some might say, oh, I know what the fruit is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Chris Galatians, come on, 522. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control. Is it those nine qualities here, or is it something else? You see the word fruit is used 44 times in the New Testament. There's about 10 different meanings to the word fruit in the New Testament. In Matthew 3, 8, the word fruit is used for the fruit of repentance. Hmm. Matthew 26, 29, Jesus is talking about the fruit of the vine, of course, referring to wine, in particular communion in that circumstance. In Romans 7, 5, Paul is writing about the fruit for death. Whoa. What's that? Well, that's sin. <laughs> Those are our actions, the fruit of our life that leads to death. Galatians 5.22 is, of course, the famous fruit of the Spirit. Those nine godly attitudes? No. Those nine godly actions that pour out of you after you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and he spills over, that is what comes out as the fruit of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.9, he talks about the fruit of life, which is truth and goodness. In the Hebrews 13.15, he talks about praise to God, the fruit of our lips. Do you know your worship to your Savior is fruit? Maybe not. If God says that I'm to bear fruit, 
John 15, Jesus is saying, this is so important. This is one of the last things I'm ever gonna tell you before I die and ultimately rise and go to heaven. Then I gotta know what fruit means. I gotta know what this is. What is Jesus talking about when he says bear fruit in this context? So that brings us to the third principle of interpretation. I use, un, I use clear verses to help interpret unclear ones. I gotta pair it up with something else and look at the text around it. Okay, Jesus, what kind of fruit are we talking about here? In John 15, we find three characteristics of fruit that we're going to look at. What it means to grow spiritual fruit. They're in verse 4, in verse 8, and verse 11. So here we go. Verse 4. He says, remain in me and I'll remain in you. Remain to stay connected to, to abide in, to connect with. A branch that is disconnected from a tree is not going to bear any fruit. That's all he's saying. Be connected to me and I'll be connected to you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. And he goes on to say, you can't do anything anything without being connected to me. So here's a very simple observation to write down. Fruit is only produced by remaining in Christ. Fruit is only produced by remaining in Christ. That is not an exaggeration. We didn't like misinterpret the text. We're not reading into anything. It's very clear. Jesus says it three times back to back to back. You stay in me, you're going to bear fruit. You don't stay in me, you're not. If you stay in Jesus, if you stay in his word, you stay in his love, you're going to be fine. If you don't, you can't do anything. What does this mean? It means that fruit is an inside job. It comes from within, from the work of Christ within you. You can't just tack fruit, things, onto your life and pretend that you're bearing fruit. It would be like right now going home, finding that tree in your front yard that is completely barren of limbs, stopping by Kroger on your way, grabbing some apples, tying some strings, putting it on the tree and go, hey, I got an apple tree in the front yard. <laughs> Everybody's going to look at you like you're crazy because you are. Just telling you, sorry to be honest, right? Christians do the exact same thing. Sure, they may come to church. They may exist here, but then they just start tacking fruit on their life. Nothing is from within. It is all an attempt to get people to see, oh, they're good people. Oh, they're doing what God does in reality. It's a tree with no leaves, and they're tying apples on it, trying to do what they think God might want them to do rather than allowing God to produce it within their life. It's got to come from within. He says the Holy Spirit flowing within us is going to bear fruit, and that fruit is only produced when we remain in Christ. Verse 8, the second one. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So the second thing would be this. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. Bearing fruit gives glory, brings glory to God. It's an incredible idea. Verse 11, we get the third characteristic. I've told you this, Jesus says. So that my joy, Jesus is, you imagine the joy of Jesus. Imagine what that is, what that looks like. And my joy may be in you so that your joy will now be complete. Jesus tells us now the motive for talking to us about fruit. It's his joy. It's all about joy. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to have his joy. So bearing fruit will bring me complete joy. When I bear fruit, incredible things are going to happen around me. And I will begin to experience complete joy. So bearing fruit, whatever it is, is produced when we remain in Christ. It brings glory to God, and it gives me great and complete joy. Are you interested in bearing that fruit? Do you want that in your life? Do you really want a life filled with the joy of Christ, so much so that he says you are living in complete joy? I hope you do. I really hope you do, because we need it. In this world, it's not very joyful around us be that light in a dark place. So in order to find out what is this fruit, we're still looking, we got to go to the fourth, fourth interpretation principle, and it's this. Look for the most obvious meaning. Now, who, who, who likes the fact that that's the reality? Look for the most obvious meaning. How many of us have struggled sometimes to just figure things out in life in general? Like, I'm just confused. Like, I just don't know what's... Our principles of interpretation say, hey, that's not how this works. Look for the most obvious meaning. Meaning, so many people in life, they do the exact opposite, don't they? They want to find some deep, hidden, secret meaning in God's word. So if you go looking for some secret, hidden, mysterious meaning in the word of God, guess what? You're probably going to miss the obvious truth. Because the Bible, I hate to tell you this, is not full of a whole bunch of giant secrets. It's not a cryptic book. All those specials on TV, while the archaeological side of things are awesome, revealing those secrets of the Bible, those are really cool to see the, the old, old, old things that have happened. But there's not really a lot of secrets in the Bible. It's pretty upfront. 
Why would God put a whole bunch of secrets in there? What's the purpose? It's to change our lives. How is it going to change our lives? By revealing the true nature of our God, who he really is, not to conceal it. Why would God give us a book and then tell us, hey, um, I'm going to use this book to tell you what you like, but you got to decode it. You got to figure it out because it's really complex and I've kind of hidden who I am in it. That's not who our God is. If you'll believe me, um, God couldn't make himself any more obvious. He sent himself to this earth to walk and show exactly who he was. There's no mystery about who God is. The purpose of the Bible is to reveal. Information is there. We just got to find it. It's obvious if you just look for it. So many people spend so much time looking for secrets. They miss the obvious truth, the thing that matters the very most. God does not play games with us like this. His only desire is for us to seek him, to find him, and for him to show himself to us. So who do you think is responsible in the efforts to distract people from the truth? It's really obvious. So when you find that new YouTube video, or you find someone claiming they have found some secret, hidden, deep meaning in God's word, or I read a verse and I give you some interpretation that nobody on planet Earth has ever heard before, guess what? I'm probably dead wrong. Don't listen. (laughs) God's word's been around a long time. God doesn't have a whole bunch of secrets that he's trying to hold back from us. He wants us to know him as personally as we possibly can. There can be different applications of his word, but the truth remains the same. The interpretation does not change. Let the text speak for itself. When you let the text do that, it becomes obvious. When we let the text speak for itself, it becomes very clear what the meaning of fruit is, and I'm about to reveal that to you. We're going to look at three final things here from chapter 15, actually from 14, 15, and 16. In verse 7 of chapter 15, Jesus says these words, if you remain in me, And my words in you, you may ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. Now, he's talking about prayer here, so write this down. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. It's that simple. Have you ever thought about this reality? That prayer can do anything that God can do? Just pause, just dwell on that for a moment. Prayer can do anything God can do. What can God do? Hmm. Your prayer can do anything that God can do, whether it's a huge monumental task or it's the smallest of details, anything. And Jesus says, whatever you wish will be given to you. Whoa, wait a minute, hold on. Now, now, pastor, come on, that's not true. I've asked for so many things and I didn't get it. Yeah, me too, (laughs) me too. If God doesn't give you what you ask for, he'll answer that prayer somehow, some way, with something better. You see, God will never give you something worse than what you ask for. Now, again, you might say, but pastor, I disagree with that completely. I don't think so because I asked for this and this is what I got and it was way worse. Well, God knows what's going on. Thankfully, he's in charge and we're not. So when you pray, don't ask to give you what you think is good for you. Ask that God will show you what he knows is good for you because he knows what I need better than I do. Remaining in Christ produces answered prayer. Interesting. Second thing we can learn, go back to chapter 14, verse 13. Same guys, same conversation. I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Wait a minute. That sounds familiar. Answered prayer brings glory to God. Answered prayer brings glory to God. Jesus says, hey, when you ask for something in his name, and then God gives it to you, it brings glory to the Father. So when I pray and I ask for things, and then God gives them to me, it brings glory to God because he is now revealing how much he cares for us, how much he loves me. And I now have a story to share with others about God's great love for me and how much he loves them as well. So the question becomes right now in your life, apply it. What do you need to be asking for in your life? What do you need to ask God for? Some of us are going through incredibly difficult times right now, whether it's physically, mentally, emotionally. When this is happening, when our knees are shaking, the advice is this, kneel, kneel. When you fall, kneel. You see, you can't fall again when you're on 
your knees. When you're on shaky ground and you're not sure what's going on around you, kneel. When you're swept off your feet by the storms of life, stay. Stay. When the sky is falling all around you, hold your hands up, bow to your knees, and pray. You see, because Jesus said, ask for anything in my name. Ask for anything in my name, and that result will bring glory to God the Father. I will, it will cause us to then remain in him as we bow in prayer. The final verse, chapter 16, verse 24, same conversation, same guys. Jesus says, until now, you haven't asked me for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be made complete. Wait a minute, that sounds really familiar. Didn't Jesus just say the exact same thing about fruit? Interesting, he's repeating himself, but differently, what's going on? Answered prayer gives me complete joy. Huh. Did you know over 20 times in the New Testament, we are commanded, not asked, commanded to ask God. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. You, James writes, you have not, why? Because you ask not. And Jesus, in his final words, to his disciples, says, hey, guys, I want you to ask. I'm not going to be here with you physically, but you can talk to me, and you can ask, and I want to give. God wants to answer your prayers. Did you know this? He wants to give because it's going to produce these answered prayers. Remaining in Christ is going to bring glory to God, and those answered prayers are going to bring joy to us. Well, when we don't pray, we, we don't cheat God out of anything. I don't know if you know that. We just cheat ourselves. It's like having a bank account that we never bother accessing. You cheat yourself, and you cheat yourself out of all the fruit that God wants and desires to produce in your life. Hopefully, you're beginning to see the connection here. Fruit is, is produced by remaining in Christ, right? Fruit bearing brings glory to God, right? Bearing fruit gives me complete joy. Wait a minute. Jesus also said answered prayers come from remaining in Christ. Answered prayer brings glory to God. And oh, wait, answered prayer gives me complete joy? Those two things all of a sudden sound a whole, whole lot alike, don't they? Fruit and prayer? In case you missed it, Jesus drives it home one more time in verse 16. He says, he ends this talk with this one last mention. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And then my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So how do you bear fruit? Well, you bear fruit by asking in prayer. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about fruit that comes through prayer. Prayer is the root of all fruit, as they say. All the other virtues in life come through prayer. Those nine from the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of those come through only one means, and that is through prayer. Prayer. Prayer is the password. Prayer is the PIN number that unlocks the bank account of God and allows you full and complete access for whatever withdrawal you would like to make, as long as it fits within his will. It's an incredible, incredible process. So often we treat prayer like that spare tire in our trunk, you know, the one that you haven't checked to even see if it has air in it? Yeah, that one. When you have a flat, your life gets off course, you pull out prayer because you're in trouble. Some people will even say things, man, all we do now is pray. Some of you might have heard that recently. All we can do now is pray. Someone else might even pile on, has it really come to that? That's all we got left is prayer. Oh, man, what kind of world? What on earth? Like, that's a bad thing that we've got prayer? Think about it this way. Think about it this way. This is an old pastor, A.J. Gordon, not important, irrelevant maybe in the scheme of life, but in the mid-1800s, he said it this way, and I love the way he said it. He said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can't do anything else. You can't do more than pray until after you've prayed. You see, prayer should be our first choice. Prayer, God does not want this prayer thing to be our spare tire. He wants it to be our steering wheel. He wants it to be our engine that moves us. He wants it to be the gas that fuels us and sustains us in our life. Prayer is where we get the fruit in our lives. Much prayer equals much fruit. Little prayer equals little fruit. And of course, Jesus tells us that no prayer equals no fruit at all. You're just hanging apples on that barren tree. The more I pray, the more fruit I'm going to have. The more fruit God produces, the more glory and honor brought to him. Joy I am going to receive. Yes, that's the equation. And that's how it works. What's our problem? Well, we have trouble praying. We have trouble praying when we're not in trouble. 
We don't have trouble praying when the world's collapsing all around us. But when things are going pretty well, eh, I forget. I got other things to do. Prayerlessness, it's said, is called practical atheism. We live life as if we don't have a heavenly father who loves us. Prayerlessness is acting like we're once again an orphan and that God hasn't promised us to take care of every single one of our needs. It's acting like I am the one in charge and my life is up to me. A Bible study, of course, isn't a Bible study unless we get to the point where we go, okay, how am I going to apply this? What am I gonna do about this truth that I've learned, the personal application? Well, our last memory verse, Matthew 7, 24, is this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, circle that, puts them into practice, is like the wise man who built his house upon the rock. Now, we started this series in that same place. So if I put into practice what I have learned about prayer and fruit today, and I'm building my house on the rock, when the storms come, and they will, my house will stand. But if I don't put into practice what I hear today, I'm just coming to a Bible study, I'm coming to church, I might even take notes, I'm such a good person, but I'm going to go home and I'm going to forget about it. Jesus says, not the pastor, Jesus says, if that's you, okay, you're a fool. Pretty harsh, I know. He that hears it but doesn't do anything about it, Jesus said, is foolish. And when the storms come, his life is going to collapse. Guys, the reality is this. Millions upon millions of people all over America and the world today are gathering to hear a message to worship Christ. But they have absolutely zero intention of taking anything from this out the door with them. It was just a moment to check something off the list. Yep, I went to church this week. I'm a good person. And Jesus says that's foolishness. I hear people say things all the time like, man, deep preaching. We need deep preaching. We got to have deep teaching. Okay. All right. Deep teaching is exploring the ancient uh, Babylonian empire and the intricate details associated therewith. No. No, actually, that's not deep at all. The deepest preaching is this, the preaching that changes your heart. The preaching that changes your mind, changes your character, changes your behavior, changes your attitude, changes your life. You could fill your mind with every Bible fact, every Bible doctrine, and in the Bible and and in your life, you're still this grumpy, old, irritated, lying, cheating gossip who's mean to your kids, mean to your wife. You swear all the time, and it's as if you have no relationship with God at all. Deep teaching doesn't have anything to do with Bible knowledge It has to do with Bible application. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with what you've learned? How will this truth change you? You see, we love you too much here to let you just come and not be challenged by the truth. The Bible calls that foolishness. So here at Berea, we don't need to just talk about prayer more. We need to be people of prayer. So right now, as part of the application phase, I want to challenge you very specifically with something. If you didn't pick up one of those outline cards earlier, do it now. There's always plenty left that that Amber gets to pick up after service tomorrow, okay? Pick one up or pick one of those note cards out and write on it right now. What is one thing? What is one thing right now you're going to write down? Lots of you don't have pens. What's one thing that you're going to write down right now that you're going to commit to about this week? Because you know now That when you pray specifically about things like this, you will bear fruit. God wants to give it to you. He's promised it to you. He will give anything to you in prayer if you are connected to him and seeking his will for your life. So what is one thing you're going to commit to praying for this week so that God can bear fruit in your life and bring you great joy? Go ahead. Write it down. Write it down. Seriously. You've got to apply these things. Maybe you need to bear fruit in your life. There's a specific spot. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your relationship with your kids. Maybe they're young. Maybe they're older kids. Maybe it's your work ethic. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's something else you've been convicted of and you know you're supposed to be doing. It's a friendship. It's your education. I don't know what it's what. You can pray and ask God, God, where do you want me to bear fruit? God, what do you want me to be praying for? Ask him and guess what? He'll tell you. He'll tell you, and he may use someone to tell you, so keep that in mind. It's a challenging lesson. It's a challenging lesson. Most of us thought that that fruit thing, oh, I'm connected, with, I'm, gonna, I'm a believer, so God's just going to bear fruit in my life. Uh-uh. Nope. That's not what Jesus just told us, is it? He said, I'll bear fruit in your life if you remain connected to me. As a matter of fact, anything you pray about, <laughs> yeah, I'll bear that in your life. What are you praying about? What are you praying about? The challenge for this week, the memory verse to go along with this week. Divide it into three sections with me and we're done. 
Okay, repeat after me. I'm going to do one second at a time. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In this world, we need wisdom. This is the only place we're going to find it. Father God, as we close this portion of the service and we go on to worship you and we remember, Father, the sacrifice you made on that cross. Father, you didn't just make the sacrifice. Father, you taught us. These final words that you're sharing with your disciples drive home the exact same point over and over and over again. And before any of us look at those guys and think, well, they must have just not been very smart. They just weren't getting it. Father God, you're doing it for us too. We need the exact same things in our lives. We need to have that same sermon preached to us every week so that we go and we follow you. And in this case, these directives were so important. They're the last, the very last things that you share with these men before you head to the cross and ultimately to heaven. Father, you know these men, they dwelled on these words for so long, wondering how it would play out in their life. And they dwelled on this word by praying to you and asking you and begging you, Father, to bear fruit in their lives. So, Father, today we've been challenged. What are we praying for? What fruit we are praying for in our life? What are we asking you for so that we can then empower you to move in our lives and to put these things into place? If we're not praying, Father, we're not going to be bearing fruit. There'll be no fruit in our life without prayer. Let us this week all of a sudden kick into high gear our prayer life and let it not be just a weak challenge, but, Father, the beginning of us enjoying this presence that we will feel in your life and this complete joy, your joy fulfilling us because all we're doing is what you asked us to bring to you these things in prayer, Father, to allow you to use us to bear that fruit so that we can then experience your joy. Father, we love you. And if there's anyone here that's not taken that first step to experience that ultimate joy of knowing you and that personal relationship, we pray whether online or here in person that they let us know that so we can begin that journey with them.